everyone and welcome to episode 29 of Sequel Pitch, in which three friends will pitch a sequel to a movie that doesn't have one. Then I pick the best one. Simple. I'm your host, Simples. Ross, and uh, joining me in this movie exorcism is a man who has been condemned to hell a long time ago. It's Andy Henry. <laughs> <laughs> Boo! Say hello. So you I was booing. Hello. I was staring. It's Halloween. Oh, okay. Sorry. Hello. Um, <laughs> with him is a man that is scared of his own shadow. It's Drew Toynbee. That is entirely correct. <laughs> hello. <laughs> and lastly, a man that is similar to Annabelle, sweet, delicate, and limited edition, but also is a fucking terrifying goat <laughs> demon from the pits of hell. It's Matt Rushton. <laughs> I'm a horny fucker. <laughs> uh, Very good. Very good. Now, if you didn't realize, my voice uh, sounds a bit different today because I am ill. I, After all this time, <laughs> all this COVID malarkey, I've n not got COVID. I'm fine. It's just as soon as as soon as that goes, it's now cold season. So now I've got a cold. <laughs> so great. Now, as you might have guessed from the episode title or the awful ghostly references, we will be pitching sequels to our first ever 2021 movie, The Conjuring mm. Three: The Devil Made Me Do It, mm. directed by Michael Chavez. Now, as ever, we do our 60 second synopsis, just in case you haven't seen the movie. So, um, this definitely probably will not be 60 seconds because I, uh, it's quite long. It's not that long. It's, 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 it is quite a long film. Yeah. So, here we go. In 1981, demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren document the exorcism of eight year old David Glatzel, attended by his family, his sister Debbie, and his boyfriend Arnie Johnson, and Father Gordon in the town of Brookfield, Connecticut. During the exorcism, Arnie Shevin Johnson invites the demon to enter his body instead of David's. Ed witnesses the demon transport itself into David's body to Arnie's, which he suffers from a heart attack and is taken to hospital in an unconscious state. Ed wakes up in the hospital and reveals to Lorraine that he witnessed the demon enter Arnie's body. She sends the police to Glatzel's house uh, and warns them that a tragedy will occur and Arnie and Debbie return to their apartment located above a kennel for some reason where Debbie works. After feeling unwell, Arnie murders his landlord under the influence of demonic possession. Oh my god. With the support of the Warrens, his case becomes the first American murder trial to claim demonic possession as a defense, resulting in the beginning of an investigation into David's original possession. The Warrens later discover a satanic curse passed on through a witch totem and meet with Cast Castner, 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 a former priest who previously dealt with the disciples of the Ram cult. He tells them that the occultists had the intention uh, had intentionally left the totem, resulting in the creation of a curse on the Glatzels, causing the possession of David. The Warrens travel to Danvers, Massachusetts to investigate the death of Katie Lincoln, who was also stabbed in a familiar and uh, 
you know, circumstances and stuff. <laughs> so Lorraine learns that Jessica had been stabbed by Katie under the influence of also a demonic possession before jumping to her death off a cliff, which allows the detective to recover her body. The Warrens travel to the funeral home where her body rests and Lorraine touches the hand of the corpse to help find the location of the occultist. Lorraine, in a vision, witnesses the occultist attempting to have Arnie kill himself but stops her just in time. Lorraine learns that the connection works both ways. Ooh. The Warrens return to their house in Connecticut to investigate further. Drew gives a book of... of Stregigerian. I definitely am not reading this. Witchcraft. Uh, basically, a book of witchcraft uh, he found to Ed, uh, and gives it to Ed. And states that in order to the curse that uh, in order for the curse to be lifted, the altar must be destroyed. When the uh, when when oh my god, it's so bad. When they realise Katie <laughs> attended nearby Fairfield University, they begin to assume the occultist is appearing and operating in the same area. Lorraine returns to Castor for help and reveals that he had raised a daughter in violation of the Catholic Church, and she started to become fascinated with the occult. Katzner gives Lorraine access to the tunnels underneath where she locates the altar. Ed arrives and is briefly possessed by the demon for some reason, and attempts by blowing some stuff in her, him <laughs> in his face, and attempts to kill Lorraine, but she retells him of the time they first met, reminding him of their love. Ed regains his consciousness and destroys the altar, saving himself, Lorraine, and Arnie. The occultist arrives at a broken altar, only to be killed in a really horrific way by the demon uh, she had summoned after failing to complete the curse. Ed places the cup from the altar in the room of artifacts after, uh, along with Valak painting and the Annabelle doll. Arnie is convicted of manslaughter, but ends up serving only five years of his sentence. After marrying Debbie while in prison, uh, Ed shows Lorraine a replica of the gazebo in which they first met, and that's the end of the movie. Oh God, that was that was a long that was a long <laughs> synopsis. But yeah, that's basically what happens. So now I want to know what you thought. So let's let's give the r listeners a little backstory. Drew hates um, Drew hates horror films. Now, yeah. Drew, do you want to tell people, if you want to, a little hmm. backstory as to why you hate them? Well, I mean, it's obviously these things are kind of difficult to definitely pinpoint, but I would, like, I could probably point to the raptors in the kitchen in Jurassic Park oh, yeah. when I would have been. So that was 93. So that was summer of 93. So when it was on video, it would have been 94. So I would have been five years old when I first saw Jurassic Park, and that messed me up. Yeah. But I love Jurassic Park, so I kind of got over that. I think the, the bigger one was seeing uh, Jeepers Creepers when I was about 12, and I um, genuinely struggled to sleep for, like, three years. Um, Jeez. Like, I, ha I had to... I could not fall asleep without um, my entire body being covered by my duvet or a blanket in case it could see me through the window and it would come and eat me. And this was wow. when I was like 14. Do you not have curtains? Um, well, no, that's half the problem is I had blinds. And they so, not stop uh, Roman blinds. 
So I had to turn them. If they were pointing downwards, then it would be able to fly to the window and look down ah, onto my bed because it was under the window. Yeah, so I had to always point the blinds upwards. But yeah, so I've kind of... I, I'm story, not good with curtains, horror. Like, but they look like the wings of Jeepers Creepers. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I burned them. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but yeah, and so like there's... I Yeah, I just really struggle. Like when I first met my wife we were with a bunch of her friends and they put on the daniel radcliffe woman in black and i literally had to leave like i couldn't i couldn't it was badly acted i, could I, I not. agree there definitely <laughs> i mean i i think i don't think dan radcliffe's a bad no, actor just, but it was everything. just like <laughs> yeah it was it's a like it properly messed me up um I, I just could not remain in the same room. So, yeah, I don't seek out horror films. Um, so, yeah, yeah. so this was so, this was a struggle. Yeah, and Matt has seen all of the films, <laughs> every single one uh, of this franchise, as have I now. Uh, well, I haven't seen the latest Annabelle film, but I have spent the entire time learning and watching all of the films uh so i i've been playing phasmophobia as well as well oh as God. also yeah so like, i'm very well inversed in demonic possession <laughs> maybe i am a demon who knows um would explain a few yeah. things <laughs> yeah but so uh so boys what did we think of this film let's go with andy what did you think of this movie the Devil Made Me Do It. I thought this movie was pretty good in the grand scheme of things. Um, I haven't seen any other film in this franchise or the spin-offs or anything, but I gave one and two a quick wiki, uh, and they, they sounded pretty good. Um, this one was okay. Uh, the good thing is, actually, it did make me kind of want to watch the other ones. I wouldn't have given... Like, this one wasn't great, as a kind of, for me, a way into the franchise actually wasn't too bad. Yeah. Um, now, Matt, mm. as a, as an uber fan mm. of um, this franchise mm -hmm. and what James Wan did with this franchise, what did you think of it? Now, I actually feel like this is one of the weakest movies in the franchise. And I actually think from the yeah. nun onwards, this franchise became a bit weaker. Because they'd been building up towards something with, you know, Conjuring 2, with Annabelle. You know, there'd kind of been a bit of a consistency throughout it with the nun. And then Valak was kind of dealt with with the nun. Then they did Annabelle uh, something home, comes home. Annabelle, Annabelle comes, comes home, home, I think it's called. Um, and yeah. it brought the daughter in. And I thought, oh, okay, they're starting to establish a wider universe. But the daughter doesn't really get a look in in Conjuring 3. So... I feel like it's in a transitional period trying to find its next feat because they've got the universe, they're talking about expanding it. I believe the next movie is The Crooked Man, which um, for anyone who has watched oh, it okay. is Conjuring 2. Uh, they reference The Crooked Man quite a lot in Conjuring 2. Um, and it kinda, it's it's pretty fucking terrifying. It's one of the scariest yeah. bits for me. Um <laughs> And, you know, I feel like if they're starting to build towards that, it's a shame we haven't seen it yet. But, yeah, as a standalone film, it's clever. The characters, for me, are established, so I don't need to be fed character development. However, if this is the first time someone watches a Conjuring film, 
the character development is pretty poor. Um, essentially, you know, one of the lead I'm glad two. I'm to hear you say has, that. I mean, <laughs> it, it is really. Like, one has a heart attack, and you're like, oh my god, is he going to die? And then the uh, title text rolls, and it tells you Ed and Lorraine Warren have got a fight. So you know for a while he's obviously not going to die. Um, yeah. So it's that was kind of really one of the only moments of you know jeopardy the characters faced other than Ed constantly getting possessed and trying to kill his wife um, as you <laughs> yeah. say the yeah. power yeah. of love compels you I mean that's pretty um, that would piss me off so <laughs> and he had to yeah, run that, through that a forest after his wife and got really sweaty got a bit and, sweaty and dizzy mm, yeah yeah um, ran faster than than the policeman <laughs> who was with them I mean that could oh, like, oh, that guy's he doesn't that guy's pass got basic canies. training yeah, he doesn't even he just... need that cane as well. Like this guy, he looks pretty buff, even for like if you see the actual uh, person it's based on. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He <laughs> yeah. needs the cane. Was a, yeah, a, a very average-looking middle-aged nineteen-eighties <laughs> yeah, yeah. American man, not uh, Patrick Wilson. <laughs> yeah, what did you think, Drew? Of the well, when you were watching it behind your hands i assume i won i did i did okay with this and it's It's not that scary it's it's not like it really does telegraph when it's being scary yeah which kind of it's it was fine like this is the thing is i don't have all that much context i like i'm okay with slasher films i've watched scream and and halloween and and but scary spooky things that go boo is not a speciality so i don't have a great deal to compare it to so i would just i would say it's it seems fine um a lot of it is down to my personal preference and i just felt like i'd be interested to see particularly matt as someone who really enjoys this franchise if you would agree with this but i i get really frustrated and i really don't like sitting watching a black screen waiting for something to pop out mm. and say boo yeah it was a few of those mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this film does that a yeah, lot yeah. but like there were some really effective bits like um the scene in the morgue where um vera farmiga's communing with the corpse mm. and then another dead body stands up yeah. and is getting ready to like fucking bull rush her that was so, i i i loved that I was like, that is creepy and horrible, and it's all there, and it's and it's building tension by showing the thing coming, not by not showing the thing until it says boo. Oh, and funny. so yeah. no, I'm the complete opposite. I didn't like that. Yeah, <laughs> one, of really? things, one of the things I've enjoyed about the Conjuring universe is that they've used the they've used empty space so effectively and sound as and well sound like they build something from nothing and half the time they drop you this and you're expecting something the guy looking through the hole looking through the hole looking through the hole yeah, and nothing yeah. happens that's why James Wan and he uses it in a lot of his movies even though he produced this like when he's involved in movies they do it a lot they use that heart stopping suspense with a complete drop off like nothing happens on that and then three seconds later they turn around and something's in their face yeah yeah. you know it's that that, power that that to me felt so predictable as soon as nothing did happen to his eye i was like oh well she's going to be behind him oh there we go 
Yeah, well, the thing is, so this is a question. So they, with this one, they wanted to steer away from the house, the, the haunted house, the possession sort of stuff like that. So that's why they focused in this one on the occultism aspect um, and mm. the cult vibe. Mm -hmm. Do you think that was a detriment? Do you think that if they had gone the way of a haunted house, it would have... It, it, because a lot of people are saying this franchise is becoming stale now because it's like, and speaking of someone that has watched like about six of these films <laughs> back to back, a lot, they do do like a lot of the same techniques of, like Drew says, it pans around the person, there's no one there, it pans back around and there's someone there and it's like a jump scare. Whereas this one I felt was was more in your face with its scares. It was like with the big guy being, you know, possessed. It wasn't as jump scary for me. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is not really that scary at all mm -hmm. um, for me. Do you think that was a detriment to the film, Matt, do you think? I'd say yes, but I, yeah. don't, I don't think the occultism is a detriment. I feel like no. just the movie doesn't feel... just the execution. Feel yeah, like yeah. it just doesn't feel like the first ones. And I think, unfortunately, the first ones were so good in what they did and using Annabelle, bringing the doll in, create a completely different vibe again. Like they had something that was really powerful and used so many cinematography, like cinematographic, what I don't know what the word is. <laughs> you know, they used so many different techniques and new ways, I'd say, especially in the first one, like new scare tactics that they could use modern cinema and the power of visual effects to create. And they've kind of run out of techniques now. They they need something new again. And they tried it with this. They tried to go for the more grotesque horror. And part of being in occultism, I guess, is that they couldn't rely on the ghost as much. But yeah, it. I think it fits more, my early point, that it just kind of feels like it's got no bigger picture at the moment. And because of that, I'm not buying into a bigger picture as much as I did when it would was the height of. Would you have preferred sort? Will you? Do you want to have sort of like an overriding story arc in I terms was, of like they? Oh, sorry, mate. No, no. I was going to say like, as in like you know they've planned out what the end sort of of this is going to be. I would have. I was waiting for anchor points for future movies. Yeah. Uh, because that's yeah. what they did so well with the first ones. They had a six-movie plan, and they stuck to it, and it worked. You know, in a time where we have the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we've got DC trying to do it at Warner. We've got more and more franchises creating their own universes. Conjuring had done this really effectively, and I'm waiting for a vision into a bigger universe again. And at the moment, they're just standalone films, within a franchise and they don't have that same gravitas now they don't have that same bigger overarching jeopardy that has been seen for four movies beyond and you're like holy shit it's that again and you know they bring characters back and you're like okay the father's going to be part of it and he doesn't really play in other than his daughter's <laughs> the antagonist he you is. know it's those things that yeah, he's, like, oh, yeah, John Noble's got a good line on on crap parents, on crap parenting, rather. <laughs> Fucking Den Denethor in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So here's a question for you, Drew and Andy. Do you mm-hmm. think that, again, the fact that it's based on two real people with real um, real cases that they're sort of at, at a at a lot at an you know disadvantage with yes. creating a story for these guys because these are real people they mm. yes they can it can be a movie but they it essentially is based on real people mm. I, we know I they're absolutely. not going to die because if you look literally up on them google you'd probably see that they're st- you know well they they're may not be alive, still alive anymore but but they- yeah yeah, I I think it a hundred percent hamstrings it. Like, so I I did a, a fair amount of back background reading on this, and apparently they had some very significant clauses in their contract when they sold the rights to their stories about what could or what what Ed and Lorraine could or couldn't be depicted doing on screen, and like, as I understand it, their relation like it's all about. There, there. A couple of the articles that I read, like, said, you know, maybe they did not have an ideal super duper happy marriage, and there may have, there may have actually been some pretty effed up s happening. Why did I say that? There was some pretty <laughs> fucked up shit happening, and none of that will be allowed to be shown, despite the fact that um, Lorraine Warren has now died. It's in the contract, and her estate, I expect, will enforce it, and. I in this film my biggest issue was that they the only like they they had no emotional journey at all the closest thing to an emotional journey is ed thinking he might die if he runs a bit too much but then by the end he's swinging around a sledgehammer for an extended period of time and seems pretty much fine um and lorraine has visions like this whole thing there's loads of stuff about the fact that they were they pushed the fact that they were safe from demons because they believed in God and it was only people who didn't believe in God who got possessed and had these problems and things. And that's a fascinating angle. Like this, this film and, 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 and like the fact that their love wins, but their love was never in doubt. If they had had a fight and like Mm. they were struggling and she had to like dig deep and, find love for him again in order to pull him out to save her own life and him that's compelling but they've been super duper in love the entire time and so while he's swinging a sledgehammer around in a basement nowhere near hitting her in like bad stage combat style like there's no emotional stakes whatsoever it's just are they going to win and of course they're going to win because they're the stars of the franchise um and they are real life people i think the best thing that they could do would be to like introduce a cool entirely fictional new character or set of characters who show up in the next movie and they take it on going forwards and Ed and Lorraine are allowed to potter off and sell their snake oil and write books about nonsense and make lots of money for it until they are no longer alive in the fictional universe do you think they could do something like a conjuring presents like similar to the spin-offs in the same yeah I th- I reckon that's a hundred percent the direction they will end up going. Yeah. Sorry, I I I've, I've witted on there. That's all right. Andy, what do you like? Do you agree with the stuff like about like all the stuff we've been saying about? I mean, um, you know, yeah, I mean a little yeah. bit. I I always like, especially when it's a horror film. Um, when at the end the the based on true events text come up, I always prefer that than at the beginning because at the end you're like, oh shit, this you know. 
really happened. Um, yeah, to be honest, I mean, Drew's absolutely right. It depends how much they can get away with. Uh, I They've got a load of good stories, and when you say something is based on real events, you could just have 3% of that story of the real events. Hmm. And so that's what I say. Like, I think you could even take one of their stories and make like three different films from it, basically just having the similar maybe uh, demon or, or something or just like concept, but just changing it slightly, uh, not to not not to sell more movies just to make money, but to just sell more movies. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's like the house uh, when you're talking about are they handicap are they um, handicapped? Is that the word? No, handicapped. Armstrong. That's the word. Or, ha- or ha- yeah. Um, mm. Does shackled. shackled? Are they shackled by having it in the house? And I'd say no because one, that's a great horror trope is to have a house. Um, and I think there's ways of keeping the house. But like, I can see why they did it. I can see why they went to the woods and and you know uh, the cliff in in the in the third one. But yeah, for me it was too much daylight, too much away from the house. I think you could still have a haunted house be the main thing in the in the movie but have action going on outside. Yeah, I think with this film, for me, I was I enjoyed it. It's not like I didn't enjoy it. I just didn't enjoy it as much as the other two Conjuring, the main Conjuring films. Yeah. Um, for me, the scares weren't as as scary as I... What, what reflects in me. Like, I like sounds, and I like, you know horrifying screams and things like that and that's what that's what scares me in the and i prefer the 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 it's similar to you know paranormal activity that sort of mm. slow burning like tension building and i think i think that's the problem with conjuring and any sort of like paranormal sort of thing now is it's been done so much now mm. that it's very very hard to come up with new ways to scare people. So I think I think they're trying to to bring people in on the story of these two people, but like you said Drew, the actual journey they go on is not really that much. Like you know, like he says, like they don't they he has a heart attack and he builds her a gazebo at the mm. end of the the, the <laughs> film and that's it. Um and yeah, I don't know. Like Matt, mm. do, where would you like? Because you're, do you think since they lost Jim? Well, not they lost, but when James Wan left the like project and but just became a you know associate producer or producer mm. of it and just overlooked the story. Do you think that that was a detriment? I feel like this really catapulted James Wan into the mainstream horror circuit again. Like he'd worked there, yeah. he'd Blumhouse Productions have done so many working with Lionsgate, especially they've done so many different movies and so many horror things. But the country really elevated him. And like for me now I see James Wan's name everywhere. Okay. And I think it does. It takes away a certain, you know, ownership and a certain characteristic of the movies. But I feel like it was established enough that a director could have still come in. He did still ultimately have a sign-off on it, so he has seen it. He's offered his input into the production. Um, I just think, 
I think, yeah, that one of the things touched on and Drew touched on it is that, you know, we've seen the power of love compels you twice before in the Kunjun movies. Ed saved Lauren in the first one. And, you know, Ed and Lauren kind of saved their daughter in the first one. Then Lorraine saved... I've said Lauren. Lorraine saved Ed in the second one. Um, and again, the daughter kind of had the influence in that. One of the things they've lost is that the daughter's now meant to be in her 30s. You know, that innocence was lost after Annabelle comes home. So they don't really have that pull anymore. So they tried to amplify it between the two of them. And ultimately that was unsuccessful because we've seen that jeopardy before. People no longer believe that actually they're in that much danger. The idea yeah. that Drew has about a fractured relationship probably is the most organic way of creating jeopardy between the two of them because they rely on Ed and Lorraine Warren being the protagonist regardless of who else they bring in. So they ultimately have to have the biggest sacrifice and the biggest threat in order to, for people to stay, you know, stay connected and stay invested in those as characters, and it, it's interesting to think where they can go with next with it. And I think they need to focus on a bigger antagonist than a protagonist because Ed and Lorraine Warren, by this point, are fully established. There's nothing really new, unless they bring in some controversy from their relationship. That there's nothing else they can do with them too now. Yeah. Hmm, that's interesting stuff. Hmm. I think we should go round and give our scores for this movie. As tell you know, give us a little summary what you liked, what you didn't like, and then give us a score. So let's go with Andy first. Ooh, um I did I did I enjoyed this movie. I think there was very jump scare heavy. I my I prefer my scares to be more like atmosphere building, um intention and i thought it was very very jump scary um we've kind of been through that a lot of the jump scares as well don't lead to anything Some, like uh when the cultist like attacks arnie in the, the hallway and then he just slides down the hall and you're just a bit like okay um mm. yeah uh okay yeah i think they they spend too much time outside of the house i, I quite like the concept of a haunted house or, or anything like that um um I liked, I liked they kind of explored, even though they, I, kind of going back on what I just said, but I'd kind of like that they did kind of go out and explore the little world that was just around them. Um, but all in all, uh, even though this is a rec- I'm going to recommend it, but I'm going to give it two and a half discount Will Arnett's and Kristen Wiggs out of five. Because from the first moment I saw them, and I was like, that's a discount Will Arnett and a discount Kristen Wiggs. How very dare Ouch. you. <laughs> How very dare you. Good Lord. <laughs> That's going Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, You're going to lose some fans there, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm... Uh, yeah, I, I kind of... I found more to appreciate in this than I expected to. I'm glad we've watched it because I, if I'm ever in a situation where a few people, I'm 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 not going to choose to watch a Conjuring movie on my own. 
But if we're ever hanging out at a weekend and Matt's like, ah, oh, really fancy watching The Conjuring 1, I will do my best to sit through it because I want to see more. <laughs> Enfield more Haunting. We'll Whichever. bring it to London, mate. You'll connect with okay. more and it'll be even yeah, more yeah. fucking scary for you. Oh, those awful <laughs> uh, fucking British accents in the second one. Jesus. <laughs> we don't talk about that. Go me. Yeah. Jesus. Anyway, yeah, carry on. Um, but yeah, there was... There, um, Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson give good performances mm. with limited material. Um, it's when it's not too dark, it is well shot. Um, it looks pretty good. I I enjoyed like some of the. I well, I couldn't tell if they were practical or digital effects, but like when Arnie is in the prison hospital bed and he's in that sort of final bit where she's trying to get him to kill himself through possession with the glass. Mm. That was impressive. And the big fat dead body worked well for me. Lorraine looking through the witch's eyes to see the rock she could pick up Mm. to hit the witch on the head. I was like, that's fucking cool. Um, The tunnel scene, I forgot to mention that. That was pretty pretty cool as well. When there was like a mirror, when she fell into like the tunnel and it was mirrored. Like she was walking back and it was her. Yeah, I was trying to figure with, out that, that yeah, was practical yeah. and stuff. And I was like, "That's that's quite cool." That's yeah, I like creepy mm, and unsettling. That's what yeah, say that's I, what I liked. And then even though it yeah. kind of didn't move, like if they if they used that maybe, but so I could. I I respect that. Whereas sitting looking at a dark screen waiting for something <laughs> to say boo, really just gets yeah. on my fucking tits. Um, <laughs> And so I I am going to give it. Uh, I'm also going to give it two point five um, stabbings in a kennels out of five. It's it it I I respect a lot of what it does, but there are absolutely flaws. I and I would I would really love for some of the characters to actually have an emotional arc and to have to change in some way as people by the end of the movie. Nice. And Matt, mm-hmm. give it five. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I genuinely could probably score some in this Conjuring universe very close to five, if not five. Um, I don't think I can score this one five, admittedly. I don't think I'd hold much credibility credibility if I did. Um, I think one of the things we haven't really talked about is some of the acting in it. And I do want to take a moment just to flag the guy who plays Arnie. For me, yeah, like maybe. his yeah. performance is fucking incredible. Like, yeah, that's fair. The kind of bipolar thing that he has to do, that he runs with, where he plays the demon, plays himself. Like, It's a bit theatre at times. Um, a bit over the top, but... <laughs> For me, it wasn't lost on me. I really gripped that, you know, he was in a really fucking messed up place. Um, so, call out there, I think... What's his name? I'm not even going to try and pronounce <laughs> it. Uh, Mr. O'Connor, who plays Arnie Johnson. Kudos, mate. Good performance. Um, like, there are a few flaws in it, but I'm I'm going to score mine in a biased way because I do have a fondness for the, uh, for the franchise... And what I would say is, if you are a horror fan, if you're looking for a franchise, the Conjuring Universe could well be one you want to get into. Um, and if you are a Conjuring Universe fan, then this, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's quite a good movie still. It still holds 
the pivotal characters. It still has hooks to other movies than the rest of the franchise. So I'm going to score it 3.5 creepy David Glatzel therapy sessions in prison. The bit where he's like, <laughs> you're always cold. I know the feeling. <laughs> it's there. You're never alone. Suddenly, like, <laughs> really fucking creeping out his sister. Um, yeah, three, 3.5 out of 5 creepy David Glatzels. Uh, okay, and I'm going to echo what everyone else says. Um, I I admire the film for trying to go in a new direction in terms of, um, you know, uh, not a haunted house. I, 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 again, admire the fact that they are probably trying to go for a different kind of scare because they've done jump scares for like six movies prior and all the spin-offs and stuff. So, I admire that. However, it didn't land for me. The performances are good, and the story for me, like, I like learning, and I like, you know, there's some really good moments, and there's some nice add-on moments where you get to see the actual people at the end of the movie during the credits. You get to hear some of the actual, like, recordings of yeah. the demon, uh, mm, like, the stuff. In the, yeah, in the exorcisms and stuff, which I really like. I like that you... Uh, learn a little bit about that. Um, so I am going to give it 3.5 um, uh, cracking bones uh, crushed and turned around demons out of uh, 5. So 3.5 for me. Okay. Which go. gives us an average score of... Oh, three. <laughs> three out of oh, five. It's a recommendation. Yeah. All right. That's good. Yeah, it's a recommendation. So there you go. It's got the sequel pitch recommendation. So now it's time to get your sequels pitched. We're going with Leah. We're going with Andy. Let's go with Andy's pitch first. Give me your title. And your little quick three lines synopsis of your pitch. My title is The Conjuring 4, The Snedeca uh, Curse. Uh, and my little one-liner is, All the Warrens want is a quiet life, but it seems they can't run away from them demons. So we open, we open in the basement of a house. A girl lazily opens her eyes, and as she looks around, she uh, as she looks around the room, she gets more erratic as the camera pulls back, and we see a, a demonic sacrifice happening. And the girl is strapped to a table. She looks around and sees a figure in a hood approach her. She tries to beg for her freedom, but the hooded man drives a knife into her heart. The blood flows over the table and a demon appears. The hooded man starts to speak Latin as the demon rises. The hooded man picks up a totem and jumps towards the demon. There's an explosion and the house blows up. Both the hooded man and demon are gone. 1986. The Warrens are driving to their new home in Connecticut. Uh, when they get to the new home, they're basically the home from the, the first one. Uh, oh, sorry, not the first one. <laughs> the, the home from the opening uh, of, the, of this movie. They realise the, the builders are behind schedule and only part of the house has been built. Uh, they meet the neighbours, and as they come out, uh, they're greeted... Sorry. We meet the neighbours as they come out to greet the Warrens, and they're easily accepted by the community, and one of the neighbours even offers their spare room um, for them to take while their house is completed. The neighbours are friendly, but give off a Stepford Wives kind of feel. When the Warrens, uh, Warrens ask about the history of the town and who used to live in their house, no one can quite remember anything. 
Over the next few scenes, some strange things start to happen. The Warrens hear strange noises coming from their house, but when they explore it, they see nothing. Screaming that sounds like it's getting closer, but nobody in the house hears it. Uh, one night, the father of the family that they're staying with, a happy-co-lucky kind of guy, uh, attacks his wife and ends up being arrested for domestic violence. Uh, and we end Act 1 with the Warrens' house basically built. All the builders have to do is finish a few things in the basement. Uh, the next day, the Warrens find the workmen dead in the basement from a suspected gas leak. But when the Warrens explore the basement, they find all the pipes are fine. As the Warrens start decorating their house and finishing it with DIY, more spooky things start to happen. Uh, they see a ghost of a little girl run towards the basement, but then vanishes. More strange noises. Uh, when, uh, when Lorraine tries to mop up a mess she made, the water turns blood red and shoots out of the bucket at her. Uh, the lights are flickering, even though there's no bulbs in them. And the rain starts to get headaches when passing uh, a certain part of the house. The Warrens start to notice their neighbours are acting differently from when they first arrived. The Warrens start to get paranoid and start researching their home but can't find any trace of it anywhere. It's as if the house never existed. The Warrens start turning on each other and soon realise that something is wrong with their home. As they walk around their house, they get a strong feeling when passing the basement and realise they, uh, realize they've never actually been down there, apart from obviously finding the builders. Uh, they start to make their way down to the basement but find it difficult and we find out this is the source of the rain's headaches. When they get down there, they find embalming equipment and body tags with the names of, some, of deceased. Lorraine finds, a body of a, uh, finds the body of a girl and when she touches her hand, she sees the last moments of the girl's life. Lorraine learns about the hooded man and suspects he, he summoned a demon. Exploring, exploring the basement, house and using Lorraine's clairvoyance. Maybe they go around town and because it's a horror film, it will be at night. And the scenes have a kind of a Silent Hill-esque feel to them. Uh, the Warrens find their house used to be owned by the hooded man, a funeral director, Dr. Snedeka, whose family worships Satan. Over the next few days, they find more clues and more spooky things happen, and the Warrens are attacked by spirits. They decide to perform an exorcism. As the rain starts the exorcism, the demons fight back and the house starts to fall apart. The ceiling falls and Ed just manages to move, move the rain. Demons start to attack the Warrens and they are forced outside. They run to the town square, which will be like a common meeting spot in the film, to catch their breath and make a plan. But before they can uh, do either, they realise the town folks are slowly surrounding them. They see the town is possessed by demons who start to attack them. And we have a classic, classic horror scene where, they, uh, where someone's being uh, possessed and contorted. But this time, as the Warrens look around, the whole town is basically possessed and contorting. And then they run after the Warrens. Uh, the Warrens hide and Lorraine has a vision. She puts all the clues together and realises Dr. Snedeka wasn't trying to summon a demon. He was trying to kill it and stop the family curse. The town is under a sort of spell and it all has to do with their house. They realise they need to go back and finish the exorcism in order to save the town. They run and kind of fight and scrap their way back to the house and perform the rest of the exorcism. Uh, the rain realises what Dr. Snecker did wrong, and maybe a wrong bit of Latin or something, and performs the exorcism while Ed barricades the house and fights off the townsfolk as their contorted bodies try to break in and kill him. Finally, the rain finishes the spell just as the window breaks and the mob is about to swarm Ed. The house blows up and everyone around the house is blown backwards. As Ed and the rain get up, they look around and get a sense the demon is finally gone for good. Everyone in the town gets up and as Ed and the rain start to think of something to say, the townsfolk introduce themselves as if they were meeting them for the first time. The Warrens look around and notice the house is basically in the same state as it was when they arrived and can tell the whole town has amnesia. The Warrens decide not to tell the town about the demons so they introduce themselves again for the first time. And then the mid-credits scene is Ed pulling uh, a relic in the new artifact room. Okay, thank you. And my one question uh, to you is, what new thing are you bringing to the Conjuring series? And what journey are the couple going on? Seeing as this is, you know, it's about Ed 
and um, well, the Warrens. Uh, the the main big thing I'm uh, well, I want to bring is when I researched this story and found out there was a funeral. It was a, based on a funeral kind of home. Uh, it just gave me the idea of lots of dead bodies, so lots of demons. So I want to bring like more than just like say one possession. Uh, it's a whole small town's possession uh, coming after these two. Um, uh, I don't know. For me, horror films aren't. They for me, they don't need that much character progression. It's in this franchise, I can see that happening. But for, mm, they 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 just they just depend on themselves and stuff. To be honest, it's kind of the same. They don't go through so much because to me, you don't need that in horror. Oh, Matt, I bet Matt's making a <laughs> mental note of that for you in the <laughs> argument bit. <laughs> There's a few notes I've um, made, don't we? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, cool. Um, cool. Thank you, Andy. Uh, okay, let's go with uh, Drew. Hello there. Hello there. Uh, what is the title of your movie and your three-line thing? Uh, the title is Conjuring for Apostate. Um, and the the super quick summary is Ed and Lorraine once again are going up against a, a demon, funnily enough. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? But also against themselves. Whoa. Whoa. They've done in the other one. <laughs> well, we'll Already slagging you off. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right, go for it, Drew. Okay, so um, we start off five years after the previous film. Um, the Warrens are looking older, looking a bit more tired and worn. Uh, it's, it's 1986, I think. They arrive at the home of Jack and Janet Smurl and their daughter, who have been seeing apparitions in their house, hearing sounds, noticing strange smells. Ed and Lorraine almost find it sort of quaint. It's a bit sweet to them after everything that they've seen. Um, and so, uh, but the audience, whilst Ed and Lorraine are kind of almost smiling it off, we're seeing glimpses of, of this presence following through the scene, sort of moving between shadows and things. Um, Ed and Lorraine say they're going to stay overnight because Ed really wants to catch um, uh, an apparition on video. And so... Uh, but obviously things take an incredibly horrific turn and effectively this beginning section is however the filmmakers themselves would do it I need this to be the most horrific section that there has been in one of these films yet um, so Ed gets distracted by uh, a, a ghost and rushes off with the camera leaving his post at the bottom of the stairs Lorraine suddenly gets a vision that something awful is coming upstairs the family are woken up by the dog on the landing. It's lying on the landing. Then it's hackles raise. It's looking down the hallway. It starts growling. It stands up. It growls more. It bears its teeth. And then it starts barking and it's really freaking out. The family come out, try and calm it down. And it's biting at them. And then we see what the dog can see. And there is this awful demonic figure bearing down on it. Wide eyes, claws, smiling, walking towards it slowly. And then all of a sudden, the dog gets ripped away from the family and slammed against the wall and it's killed. The daughter gets thrown down the stairs where she hits Ed and Lorraine who were coming up and then I found this I, f I found this detail somewhere else and I really want it to be horrific but the creature kills Jack and Janet in a like really sexual way um they're like this particular story mentioned these people being sexually assaulted by a presence um and then they are killed Ed and Lorraine get hit by the daughter when she's coming down the stairs 
the creature comes down covered with the blood of the parents it's going for ed um it grabs him and he drops his crucifix like he's just overcome with terror just the sheer horror of what's happened overcomes him but the rain manages to pick up the crucifix and oh father gordon's there as well sorry i didn't mention that before um father gordon helps out too and they manage to banish the demon and they realize that it used those apparitions as a trap it wanted to lure the warrens here to try and take their souls um title sequence conjuring for apostate um apostate is someone who renounces their faith um we jump forwards another 10 years um ed and the rain is the mid 90s now they've spent more years sort of telling their stories doing the lecture circuit writing their books um but they're not doing as much investigating anymore um they're sort of they're getting on in years they're living quite slowly their daughter and her husband help them out a lot um but there's significant tension between ed and lorraine um and sort of slowly it reveals that ed renounced his faith that night when the demon nearly took him he basically said like how can god let these things happen i can't i can't have faith in a god who could allow this awful th things to happen um but that's why they don't go investigating anymore because he won't do it because he knows that he doesn't have god's protection um he spends all of his time looking over his shoulder thinking he's seeing things and we just hide ghosts and monsters in every fucking frame when ed is the focus of the scene and they are just everywhere around him and so he clings to lorraine um because she can still protect him but after so many years she knows that he's hiding something from her and it's driving a wedge between them which puts ed more at risk so he's more afraid and so he clings on more and so the the tension's raising and because they don't do any they haven't done any new cases they're starting to run out of money and so they're they're risking losing their house where they keep all of the all of the artifacts and stuff and we have a, a b plot of the daughter trying to like sell new books and stories and encountering skeptics and raising the idea of what if it's all fake and she's struggling to get bookings it's all very difficult um and then eventually after ed has just been tormented by these things that he can see for so long they have a giant blowout fight ed is fueled by fear and anger at god and grief for his lost faith and lorraine is just completely unable to take his lies anymore knowing that he's lying and he won't admit it so she storms out of the house um and as soon as she's gone like a present takes the house a presence as soon as she's gone a presence takes the house with ed inside it and you have a really slow ratcheting tension sequence where he's like walking around the house and rather than the camera panning one way and then panning back and there's a monster there the camera pans one way and pans back and the room is subtly different and the more the camera moves around the house it just starts turning into a completely different house and none of the doors to the outside are where he thinks they are and it just gets scary and scary and horrible and horrible and this thing's like hunting him and enjoying his terror um Lorraine finds her daughter and they they sort of talk about Ed and what's happened over the last few years. They realise he must have renounced his faith. Um, Lorraine realises he's in danger. They go back to the house. Father Gordon's too old now to help out. So Lorraine and her daughter and son-in-law um, have to get in and take on the spirits that have come for Ed. Um, and they're hoping that taking Ed would break Lorraine too. It's all incredibly scary. All of the old artifacts come back into play and there's cameos from older monsters and, and Annabelle and everything else. Um, in the end, J Lorraine and Judy make it to Ed. They have a really moving scene where he breaks down and explains he couldn't keep his faith if God couldn't keep people safe, but they talk him round. They renew his faith in God. All three of them stand up together and do the Guardians of the Galaxy end scene. 
and face down the demons with renewed strength and banish them forever. Um, and the movie ends with Ed and Lorraine going on to keep investigating and trying to help people with renewed faith and love. Okay, thank you, Drew. Um, same question to you. What are you bringing to the Conjuring franchise? And what uh, I kind of know the answer to this, but what is the <laughs> journey that the the two are going on? Yeah, I am bringing an emotional arc. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. I just wanted to make sure that that was in there, and like I I I feel like there is this is just from my background research and despite having watched a very well produced video on IGN's YouTube that laid out a timeline of all of the Conjuring universe films like it may well be that faith and God and skepticism are explored in previous films but it certainly isn't an overriding theme and I think there is something really fascinating to explore in this that says like how do these people who have so many people in the world saying you are charlatans you're liars you're taking advantage of the mentally ill how do they keep going and how do they persevere and if assuming that this is real how do they keep faith in a god who allows this horrible shit to happen um yeah so yeah that, there we go cool thank you drew and last but no means least uh conjuring super fan uh we're gonna go for matt rushton you're putting Ooh. a lot of pressure on now <laughs> not gonna lie sweating a little bit um i am <laughs> taking it back to a another story that's already been touched on but um yeah we will dive into more why mine differs uh my movie go title is the yes. conjuring Snedicus suspects as you can guess, I'm competing yeah. with Andy in this story. Um, <laughs> oh, this is the risk of doing stuff. Like I swear, we had a rule when we said we'd do this podcast: we would never do films based on real events because we yeah. would encounter this exact issue. But here we go. We're here now. I'll explain why I picked this one and not the Smule family. <laughs> <laughs> um, continuing yeah. to follow the Wikipedia list of notable investigations, as they call it in the subheading. <laughs> Uh, that the previous movies they've all followed, like you look at it movie for yeah, movie, yeah. it's their notable investigations list. So I picked the very next one, which is the Snedica case. Smurl family is the one after, just as a note, Ross, uh, some gap in Drew's timeline. Um, <laughs> but we see them face off <laughs> against multiple evils. Uh, obviously, the spirit oh. world and the media. Ah, there you he's go. copying me. He's copying me. Would you like me to start? <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. Yes, I was. I, some people just start, and then other people just, you know. Uh, okay, I like the. Uh, you get points for wanting me to tell you to start. Uh, you may start. The movie starts with the now familiar black background that Drew hates. And the yellow writing, <laughs> the title credit rolling, yellow writing accustomed, accustomed to the country franchise. 1986. Ed and Lorraine Warren are investigating the Snedica residence in Southington, Connecticut. This former funeral home has been terrorising the Snedica family since they moved in, leading to a desperate call to the Warrens to help them to understand who or what is haunting them and how they move forward. Then we have the classic based-on-true-events line appear. 
Nice. We open to Lorraine walking through the clairvoyant, the medium vision that she has, bringing that straight into the movie. And we show her look back at the real world where there's another seance being held, very typical of the Conjuring universe by this point in the dining room. Lorraine heads down into the basement, seeing all of the mortuary tools, uh, all of the, you know, where they would do the morgue-based things. Um, but they're all bleeding. It's all creepier. There's a lot of fresh blood dripping off the blades, the axes, and everything's just dark and fucked up. It's dark, it's menacing, and there's the undertone of, like, chiming bells coming from deeper within. Lorraine kind of journeys down, but she starts realising um, she goes down various twisting corridors, and uh, it starts becoming less and less like it's in a house more like it's in like caverns and catacombs um and she starts seeing like satanic symbols appearing um on the walls and at first it looks like they were dry blood and they've been there for a long time and as she keeps moving and following the chiming bells uh they intensify and they look like they're fresh blood to the point where as she gets very close and the bells get louder the blood's dripping off the wall still with these very freshly painted symbols um, and as she moves to the crux of the haunting, the what I've kind of touched on it already. But what differs from this vision that we've not seen in previous movies is that she's not just in the house anymore. She's ventured into somewhere different. Before the the visions have all been within the same four walls. This has taken us somewhere new. We've not seen this before. The final terrifying vision that she has essentially she comes into the heartbeat of where the bells are, where all this noise is being made, is a giant humanoid figure turning directly towards her, black eyes, almost like it's burning, like they're on fire, and she hears the deep demonic voice saying, I see you. And with that, she screams, snaps back to reality immediately. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> the eyes are on burning. Uh, I didn't think of that at the time. But but she runs out the house. Anyway, the title credits roll and it's the conjuring Snedeker suspects. So at this point we jump five years into the future. It's 1992 and we see a man being interviewed on a sofa. His name's Gary Orton. In real life his name's Ray Garton or Gorton. Uh, he is the person who wrote a book uh, called In a Dark Place, The Story of a True Haunting which follows the Snedeker case. Uh, he's explaining in a TV-style interview that the book's a fantasy ghost story and not a fact, a factual piece of uh, non-fiction. Uh, and he can't say it's a fact due to the fact that all the Snedeker family gave different stories and they didn't line up with the Warrens' stories. Uh, and he's asked about the Warrens and he fidgets uncomfortably in his chair and he says, the Warrens repeatedly told me they had videotape of actual supernatural activity shot in the house and they were going to show it to me while I was there, but they never did. They said they couldn't find the tape. And we kind of cut immediately from the interview as we see Ed Warren get up and he's fuming and he turns the TV off before the conversation, before the interview to c can carry on. And clearly it's getting to him now. He's kind of getting pissed off. Um, and we establish that since the incident, there's a load of TV reports, the media, they're all reporting that they're fake that everything that they've published is all lies they're just they're ghost or they tell ghost stories there's nothing real about them that they're a scam um and this is clearly creating a burden a weight on both of them and the arnie johnson case is referenced a lot that they're jokers and they've even played the government and they've played the legal system um 
and yeah, it turns out again. So just catching up on my own gibberish. Uh, <laughs> Lorraine seems quite detached again. Something that appears to have been happening more and more often recently. Um, and they discuss this through dialogue. Again, I'll just give you the scene you can write the script. Um, we learn through the dialogue as well that those strange occurrences stopped happening at the old Snedeker residence as soon as uh, Ed and Lorraine one visited, and they've also had no contact with the Snedeker family um, because they blame the Warrens for dragging their name through the mud and making it out like they were all part of this uh, this game, this pretense where of course, they feel like very much their journey was uh, real and the things that they suffered in that house were true and it's the Warrens' fault that they're being painted out as liars. So, in typical fashion, one night, of course, it's a horror film, um, the Warrens are out, perhaps they've gone for dinner, and they come home to a voice message, it's an answer machine, and they hear a desperate voice on the other end, it's happening again, please help, we're sorry, before the message cuts off. Ed recognises the voice but is unable to kind of pinpoint who it was. Lorraine listens to the message and immediately she finds herself dragged back into the catacombs from the opening scene. Like kind of a clairvoyant echo. Um, the voice though echoes through the corridors as she's running through rather than the bells. And we hear the same line over and over pleading, you know, it's happening again, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. And it echoes through and it gets louder and louder. And we use the effect of surround sound in a cinema to bounce it from all the walls. So it's creating a really disturbing feeling for the audience. Um, yet the it bounces around and it builds and builds. It crescendos as the camera zooms into, Lor into Lorraine's face. And she's like white as a ghost as she turns a corner. And of course, I put in the pan where it comes round Lorraine and what we see the other <laughs> side is the giant demonic face stood over her, like basically <laughs> face to face with her. Um, and we hear the same three words, I see you, echo again. And she screams and awakes once again, but she's actually outside. And what I didn't put in my notes, but I like, is that she's outside the Snedeker residence in a kind of almost like she's followed it and she's appeared in the catacombs perhaps where they may be um so this immediately tells all that she needs to know it's that house it's the family that called the demonic presence has found or followed the family and the house was merely just the vessel that was holding the demon within and it latched onto the Snedeker family and they need to get in uh because the basement there's the satanic shit's coming from that basement so, in order to remove the de demonic curse, the Snedeker family and the Warrens have to return to that funeral home. Much to the grievance of the new residents that have had no issues whatsoever. They've been completely fine. The media are all taking the piss. They're all following it like, here we go again. Oh, the fucking crazies. Um, and now the, the Warrens have to battle the real world, battle the people within it, as well as the spirits that uh, we know now definitely exist and there's a lot of shit going on. Um, this is where it becomes a lot scarier. The third act focuses very much in the house. We pack everything into the house now. Um, so we go back to that kind of more classic haunted house feel that we were talking about earlier. Um, it's focused on that funeral home. It's focused on the spirit world. Lorraine goes straight back in. The rest of them are in the house. Uh, and at the crux of it, the basement floor 
crumbles away in the spirit world first in the kind of clairvoyant world that Lorraine is in and she finds the catacombs underneath the funeral home um but it happens in the real world too so Ed and the family can see the the catacombs as well and the pathways are there and you see the dry blood symbols that have been painted on the catacomb walls so together the Warrens they they head through uh the catacombs uh, and they managed to trap the demon in an object that's introduced earlier in the movie that I hadn't done because I needed something um, when I was writing this. <laughs> so in their research, they find perhaps, you know what, actually, fuck it. I'm going to blag this now. Uh, the the call to the ram, it's all connected to that. It's all connected to that. So they grab one of the old relics from the third movie um, and they manage to trap the demon in this kind of chalice that's still got all the same markings that we see from the third movie. Um, and yeah, that's the that's the kind of, you know, it's got the symbols, it's got the blood, blah, blah, blah. Basically, regardless, the Warrens are successful, they think, and they place the object in their ever-growing artifact, occultist basement type thing that they've got going on. Uh, some portions of the media continue to bash the Warrens, um, and in the end, we see the, the end of the interview with Gary Orton, Rhaegar Gorton, who finishes the sentence that we cut off when Ed switched the TV off. The Warrens repeatedly told me that they had videotape of actual supernatural activity shot in the house, and they were going to show it to me while I was there, but they never did. They said they couldn't find the tape, and I didn't believe them until I saw it myself. I had a videotape arrive in the post just recently with a note, See for yourself. And the tape, well... It makes me feel a dread like I've never felt before. The movie ends with a videotape of that demonic, of the, you know, the demonic things that Ed captured. If it actually exists, fucking cool. Let's use the actual footage. If it doesn't, cinematography is amazing. We can make it look fucking cool either way. Credits roll. Post-credit scene. Of course there's a fucking post-credit scene. It is a universe after all. We're back in the artifact basement. And we see the symbol, like, it's a major zoom, like, it's a real up-close shot. And the symbol appears to be somewhere different from where I'd put it. And the camera, but the camera's too zoomed in. It zooms out slowly, and as the camera zooms out, we see that the symbol has indeed moved, and it's now in the same chamber as the locked Annabelle case. There's no indication of how the object got in there, everything's sealed, but we end with that lingering shot of nothing that Drew hates, where you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting for way too long, and we're just looking at this static, like the static Annabelle and this static uh, artifact. But there's a buzzing and a humming undertone that starts to build louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. And just as it crescendos, we see the glass crack. Nothing else moves. Fade to black. Well, quick cut to black. Fuck the fade. Cut to black. I, nice. I object. That sounds good. I don't like silent black films. Yeah, when there's actually uh, like nothing silent in, black screens yeah. where nothing's happening yeah. until something says boo. Building tension, all good. Okay, well, there you go. Drew <laughs> even signs off on my last post-credit <laughs> scene, so if Drew likes yeah. it, mm. then it means I have to win by default, right? Very nice, very nice. And this, you sum this up very quickly, my Sorry. friend, because you've got... Uh, how, what are you bringing to uh, the Conjuring series? Uh, I'm just creating a bigger picture, um, especially with that winging moment, bringing back the call to the ram. 
it's starting to create something bigger again and bringing Annabelle in for their next uh, their next spin-off movie and a bit more of an arc. Okay. Right. I've heard all your pitches and now I'm going to throw it over to you to win me around in a quick fire argument. Uh, tell me why I should pick yours if you want to. If you want to have a go at someone else's pitch, have a go. The floor is yours. I'm going straight in, naturally. Um, I take the Snedeker case that Andy also took, but I keep it much close to the original story. You're able to reference back to the story at the end, as I have done, which they do with all the other country movies. Uh, I'm just a bit more honourable to the franchise. Knowing the franchise most, I feel like mine's the most organic follow-on film. Drew's is way too character-heavy. I like that there's some character depth in there, but it's way too much. That isn't what country and universe fans want. They want my movie. Simple as that. <laughs> I think I think Matt's is way too long and overcomplicated, and and has just ripped off Sauron for a start. <laughs> like, set like there's there is Sauron, but again, like there's. I don't I don't think that we should ever be satisfied with just giving an audience exactly the same thing that they want again because for every person who does want that there's someone else who wants something to evolve and my film has scares it has more emotional stakes it has a journey for these characters to actually go on that is based on themselves and hardships in the real world with i think some pretty cool imagery and concepts and some actual like scary ideas that i've put into it where i think Andy's, Andy's, I think, sounds like a cool standalone movie. Like, I really like the... Every time Andy was saying something like, oh, yeah, all of the, the townsfolk are coming to break into the house, I was like, oh, how's he going to fucking deal with that? And then he was like, oh, yeah, but everything reverted to normal afterwards. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. But it doesn't... For me, it, it feels a bit too action-heavy. And I think Matt's just feels like the same thing again. I think mine is the only one that feels fresh and a bit different and still has and actually develops these characters a little bit more and leaves things open to spin off into a wider universe and bring in some new characters instead of still being stuck slavishly with these two people who we know contractually have said you can't have anything more interesting happen to them. So you break the contract. Oh shit! You you can deal with that lawsuit. Yeah. Ross, face the lawsuit. It'll be worth. No, one. I'm no, I'm yeah. not. I'm not breaking the contract. The terms of the contract state that you can't see them breaking the law, and they haven't broken the law. But I've still pushed them to be a little bit more flawed. They're not just these two perfect people who show up and just carry on doing what they need to do until they win. They well, actually have trials and tribulations to overcome. Sorry, didn't they break into the police station or something in the third one? He breaks the window and he goes, oh, I'll, re- I'll leave a note or something. That's breaking the law, isn't it? Well, okay, to be more specific, the... <laughs> not, not having to go with you or something, you just mentioned oh, they don't break the law. And I was a bit like, wait a minute, did he smash a window and literally yeah, break and enter? I mean, we maybe shouldn't leave this bit in, but specifically, apparently the contract says they can't be shown breaking the law specifically in regards to underage intercourse. Is that it? And we'll just... Well, no... But think about the fact that they would specifically say, hey, mm. under no well, circumstances. I, I can imagine. I don't want to, but like, yeah. that's interesting. Um, yeah, maybe, oh. maybe we should cut that. that I didn't know <laughs> that. That's... Definitely cut this bit. Mm, okay. There's a Hollywood Reporter article. If I can find it, I'll send you the link. It was actually yeah. like 
it was genuinely interesting. But anyway, um, but yeah. Okay, that's um, what I think. Right, I will. I'll save Matt's because it's, it's the same story as mine. Drew's. Um, I don't think brings much new. I think you said you it's a slow burn, which is exactly what you want from a horror film. Um, the uh, I don't know. I didn't like the way the Warrens like split up and went against each other because I say they've done that in other films. I found it very unbelievable that Ed would just completely renounce this and just be like, "No, I'm done with it." After like everything he's been with, uh, been through with Lorraine, like the like, yeah, I just I just didn't believe it. It it just give it up after all this lot. Um, Matt, I also agree. It's very long, complicated. Even though I don't think a lot happens in Act One and Two. It's but and especially no scary stuff. You've got like a, a scary vision at the start, a scary sec this thing like halfway through to Act Two, I'm guessing, and then the Act Three is very scary heavy. But you've almost almost got like a drama or something at the start. Um, mine uh, keeps the Warrens together, and like Drew's, uh, it's scary all the way through. Um, like Matt's, I think mine's got classic horrors tropes mixed with the real life events, uh, and brings new stuff like the town possession and new things that we can see. Um, yeah. The biggest flaw with Andy's is that they move house. They'd never move house. Yeah. Um, and it's, they've always been the biggest flaw. The convenience, <laughs> the convenience of moving into the into the residence where the Snedeker yeah, family yeah. lived, yeah. and it's you know, like, unless they, they, they just can't get away from If you'd said they picked there because of what happened in that house, <laughs> then no, I'd have bought into thing it. The fact that they conveniently move there with these two. That's the whole thing. These two like paranormal experts spend a lot of the film going, Oh, it feels a bit paranormal in here. Should we do something about it? No, let's leave it. <laughs> they can't, oh, they can't research the house, though, so they, they're trying to figure out everything on the fly. They know and, things are going on. In terms of Drew doing uh, Ed losing faith, as you know, Ross, in the second one that is touched on quite a bit with the Enfield. Well, then he has, a, he has a propensity it a to it. He so. has a propensity towards it, and this time it gets the better of him. Mm. <gasps> also, uh, you've both you've both used the word Snedeker in your titles. Like that is an SEO fucking nightmare. No marketing <laughs> department on earth is going to allow the word Snedeker. Oh, Absolutely, they will. Title. Absolutely, they will. Because if you type Snedeker, all well. that comes up is the Snedeker family story yeah, and everything yeah, if, that if they do with the community. If someone says, "Oh, Snedeker." Right, how do you spell that? Yeah, uh, well, they'll see it in the title. That's why yeah. I put it in the title, Once so everyone poster, sees it and can type it. Be imprinted on um, their yeah, but word of mouth, Matthew. Word of mouth. <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely adverts. not. Absolutely not. You put it in because everyone can type it, and then everyone immediately finds the Snedek family story. That's what all it's the conjuring a, films do. They use real it's life. It's a bad word. It's a family name. Yeah, it's the not, Enfield. It's, it's, it's the Enfield Yeah, but it's the actual name of the family, so we can't change it. That's what makes Snedeker so helpful. <laughs> it's the family's no, name. If you change it, then that's complete. Right, <laughs> we, we kept the Enfields and what was it, parents? You've, you've you've still you've still kept it like inspired by true events. Mine anyway, is. Like, yeah, mine's is, based on real tangent. I yeah, right. You can change your name and it's still based on true events. No, keep Snedeker so people find it. I. This is hard. This is a hard one. Because I've got, on one hand, I've got two that are based on a a true story, which is what... Mine is based um, on a true story. The The first act is, like, the prologue is a real case of theirs. Okay. Just the prologue. All right. Well, I guess three then. Three. Um, <laughs> all, all three have 
reference to one of their stories. Only one is based on one of the stories that they actually touched. I'm just going to say. That's yeah. Mm. Mine was based and expanded. That's oh, why it's, that's why it's loose, better. Really fucking, fucking loosely based. <laughs> no, no. Constant referencing back to it. Yeah, yeah, but, but it doesn't make it good. It's, it's not. It's not real. That's not how it happened in real fucking life. You've got nothing going saying. on. The one, hour of your and film. all the bit with the interview with the author, <laughs> the Snedek family hate Ooh, the Warrens so for what they did to their name. Like so many of those yeah. points refer back to it. Andy's they kicked d- them out. Andy, I don't possess but, a towel, and they and never say went. That it's based on true events. I don't use a reference <laughs> in the first five fair. minutes of a movie and say it's based on true events. Mine <laughs> oh, is based on true 20. events. The other two aren't. <laughs> right. I think I've made my decision. I'm not going to give you pointers about why yours are good. I'm just going to go with the winner. Um, and <laughs> this week's winner of sequel pitch is... Drew Toynbee. Oh, the fuck? I am done. Ross, Ross, did you hear my pitch? Excuse me. Like, do you, do you want me to I say did. it again? Oh, I did. How? What oh, was your thinking there? You buddy? have to explain yourself. Yeah, you really you have, have to explain, explain yourself. <laughs> I think, I think, Drew, with like, uh, you know, work, the character. I don't know. There's something about the characters that I liked in that, and then if you base it around, like, you know, the horror, it might be good. And it also, Matt's yours is just too long. Yours is just too long. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I I, I always get too fucking long. ridiculed for bringing half a pitch. The one time I actually bring a full pitch, I'm told it's too long. I'm just going to bring you four sentences again from now on, boys. You're fucking welcome. I was gonna. I wanted you to win because I was like, oh, he's a massive mm. fan. And I I'm was like, it to I'm fair, sorry, man. mate. Yeah, I, What's wrong yeah, with mine then? Why I not, am why surprised. Uh, why, why was Drew better Andy, than mine? I did like yours. I like the whole the, the town. But again, it's your thing about fucking everyone bit in a town being possessed <laughs> clones and demons. <laughs> and clones. Fucking alien. Clones. I'm surprised you didn't say that they were aliens. Uh, <laughs> no, but it was good. Your, all, all, all of yours was good. It was just... Drew just, I don't know, there was something in my head that was like, well, that'd be quite interesting to them to go a different way. Yes, it might not probably be what the fans want, and my, the, we'll just get some shit director to direct it, and then we'll just go back to Matt's on Conjuring <laughs> 6. No, no, you know, um, but, the, but you didn't there. like Matt. Bury you the like franchise mine. there, that's all we need. But well done, Drew. <laughs> um, Great way, mate. I mean, you added now, so much character depth into that movie. I was like... <sighs> <laughs> yeah, he Can't just loves with the that. character Can't shit. Wow. With that. Um, that, I I am really surprised. Like, <laughs> like as I meant it when I was like, Andy's is Andy actually has some really really sick ideas, yeah. and Matt's like I'm 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 very grateful, Ross. I appreciate well, I'll take it. it back. No, God, no. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, Drew, you're this week's winner. Um. What are we doing next time on Sequel Pitch? Um, we are going to, in honour of a film that has recently wrapped shooting in the last couple of months, we're going to jump in to our big, thick, chunky, autumnal cable-knit sweaters and head to New England with Knives Out, directed by Ryan Johnson. For fuck's sake. Ah! Um, and... We're going to be joined 
by a very special guest pitcher, Ooh. not a guest judge, Ooh. guest pitcher, Jordan King. Oh, Jordan's bollocks. Returning. Oh, bollocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I lost. Another week to lose. <laughs> very worried now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shite. So, am I allowed to bring a 10 page pitch or will it be too long? Yeah. <laughs> now nah, you go for it. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, out I... is fucking deep. It's going to yeah. be 10 pages to pitch this. I, yeah. I, I, think, I think that you. It doesn't have to follow the structure of the first one too closely. Like, I think as long as Benoit Blanc shows up and there's some sort of mystery. I think we're golden. I have one question. I mean, Andy wants to kill Daniel Craig again. He's got a real think against Daniel Craig. Um, <laughs> does Benoit Blanc need the same accent as the first movie? I mean, I'm not going to say that I would give you points if he inexplicably had a different accent. Or something. <laughs> but, yeah. But I like would. Poirot. Like, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. If if you if it tickles me the right way, I'm not going to mark you down because I think that would be fucking hysterical. But anyway. <laughs> Well, that, there you have it, guys. We have uh, Knives Out for our next episode. Um, so thank you so much for listening to this bumper Halloween episode of Sequel Pitch. Um, there are no more scary movies now. October is over, and we're now moving into November, I think, maybe. Uh, and so, yeah, thank you. You can find us on all the social medias. Facebook, Instagram, um, uh, Twitter as well. And uh, yeah, give us what you think would be the best Conjuring 5 um, sequel. Um, four. Well, Conjuring 4 yeah. sequel. Um, tell us. Tell us if I... Well, tell me if you think Matt should have won. Tell me if you think Andy should have won. Tell me anything. Tell me. Um, so it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from Drew. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, well, I should have said this week's winner. Oh, well, fuck it. Yeah. Um, it's goodbye from Matt. Um, I just have a message. Ross Armston, Jordan King. I see. You. <laughs> <laughs> and it's goodbye from Andy. Goodbye. Bye. Halloween. Happy Halloween. Halloween spooky. Oh, actually, time. I've got a note here that says he doesn't look like Will Arnett. It's more Will Arnett's haircut, and he looks like Chris Pratt. If that, if that wins me back any fans. There we go. For fuck's sake. <laughs>